0: Shabbat Shalom once again. Thank you to the three people who said it over there. Shabbat shalom. Shabbat shalom. Excellent. We are so glad that you are all here, and we are thrilled that Professor Dollinger is here. Uh, his grandparents were founding members of the congregation at which I grew up. So uh, that is uh, somewhat Lador Vador from one generation to the next, with Rabbi Reiskin, who was at this synagogue for uh, many, many times before he passed away, who was my rabbi. Um, and, you know, the great part of being a Jewish professional is it's a very small world. And so uh, the professor and I were in graduate school at the same time. I was in rabbinical school, uh, and he was getting his doctorate. And uh, we, we were in the same circles uh, many, many times in West Los Angeles during the early 90s. And so nothing was more of a thrill for me than about two or three years ago when I went to my rabbinic convention on the West Coast in Palm Springs. And the scholar for uh, the weekend was the professor. And uh, it is hard to impress a group of 150 rabbis. He not only impressed us, he upset us, he educated us, he provoked us, he got us thinking in ways we had not thought about Judaism and being a Jew in America and in America uh, what it means to be Jewish, uh, the, the ways that he described and thought of uh, the Jews place in American, Jewish his- in American history was just amazingly provocative and uh, I have not stopped thinking about it since Professor. So much so that I became a stalker on Facebook. Um, <laughs> And what I learned about uh, our professor, not only is he a foremost historian at San Francisco State, uh, well-known throughout the country, uh, he is a defender, a defender in the strongest way uh, against the BDS movement, boycott, divestment, and sanctions. You will remember in the early 2000s, UCI was the hotbed and the center of attention for BDS and really anti-Israel movement on college campuses. I am glad that we have grown a little in that area. It's not perfect, Uh, although I'm sad that we passed the baton to Northern California at UC Berkeley and at San Francisco State, where it seems to be really the capital now of uh, this BDS movement. And we do not have a better defender or s- a stronger voice than Professor Dollinger, who is literally in the Chancellor's office, uh, weekly, I would say. And if you want to follow the whole story, uh, follow the San Francisco, it used to be called the Bulletin, I don't know what, jweekly.com. jweekly.com. Uh, which I do follow weekly. Uh, and uh, the story is outlined over many months what took place at San Francisco State. And hopefully, we have some resolution now. With no further ado, Dr. Mark Dollinger holds the Richard and Rhoda Goldman Endowed Chair in Jewish Studies and Social Responsibility at SFSU. Uh, so, welcome, Professor. We are so glad you are here. Shabbat shalom.
1: Uh, sure. I don't really want to speak ill of one of my teachers. Does anyone here know Miss Lyle? (laughs) Actually, some of you may, because it turns out there's a whole lot of people here from my hometown of Palos Verdes, California. And this, yeah, there we go. Thank you, both of you. This is uh, Malaga Cove Intermediate School, where I I took my education. And there, and I'll, I'll just say that the first time I gave a version of this talk, I found Miss Lyle, thanks to the internet, and she attended. So she is all cool with the fact that I'm about to defame her name and reputation in front of you. Sixth grade, ESS, English and Social Studies. There, we were learning what I now know is called cultural anthropology. And we received a worksheet, as we often did back in the day of mimeographs. And on the worksheet, it told us about a group of people called mongoloid. You see? Oh, yes, what we, it's going to get worse. What, what we learned about mongoloid is they had slanted eyes and yellow skin. And then we learned in Ms. Lyle's class about negroid. And negroid had flat lips and dark complexion. And then we learned about Caucasoid with white skin and average features. And you know, if you put the suffix O-I-D at the end of a word, oid, it makes it sound scientific and a whole lot more true just for putting O-I-D at the end. Well, you can imagine when exam time came, true or false, mongoloids have dark skin. And then you'd have to know how to answer that question. And then there was the matching, where on the left side of the test, it was Mongoloid, Negro, and then the right side was the carrot. And then you had to draw the line connecting each one of those. Uh, and then there was fill in the blank. Uh, Negroid has blank lips, right? And then you'd have to put in the adjective, which tells us Jews whiteness are subject for tonight. And dare I say it, Shabbat Shalom. Some of you have sheets. Don't worry if you don't, but uh, this is incredible turnout. So uh, I will say everything, and it's going to be up here on the board. And what I have at the very beginning for each of my classes and here is an historical question or some related questions that we're going to focus on tonight. So here is the first question. Wait. We have an issue here. Apparently a slide has made it into my PowerPoint demonstration, unbeknownst to me, even though I put it there. Yes, this is your advertisement for the Community Scholar Program Hat Challenge. Ari Katz would like me to let you know, that's uh, Ari on the right-hand side, that you have two weeks and three days to wear the CSP hat somewhere. Send your picture in, and at the end of the month I spend here in Orange County, there will be a prize for the winner. And uh, here he's got a group picture and I'm featuring one person each week, so here is tonight's CSP Hat Challenge, and so you should be inspired and perhaps intimidated. I have sent in two entries myself since I've been here. (laughs) Our historical question, what is whiteness? Are Jews white? And what are its implications? Now, I'd like to thank the rabbis for bringing me here and for picking the topic and for setting it up as you did at PAR, because. Shabbat shalom, everyone. I'm going to be dropping all the words you're not supposed to use. All right, I'll tell you, my field is Jews and politics, the two topics you're not supposed to engage in polite conversation, which is why I don't get invited to parties. I actually do get invited. I just don't get invited back. So so tonight I'm taking advantage of tenure and of your rabbis, and we're just going to get into it. So it's a lot of words here. Don't worry about it, because we'll work through it. Jews, more than any other American ethno-religious group, maintain an ambivalent, if ever-changing, relationship to whiteness. Over time, place, and person, its very definition proves contested, even as it proves vital to an understanding of our community's Jewishness, our Americanness, and our relationship to many other American groups, including our own. Ultimately, Jewish whiteness exposes the dynamics of privilege and the powerful and often destructive ways it plays out in American life. So here we go. This is a rhetorical question. Do you consider Jews white? I say it's rhetorical because I know it's rhetorical. I'm not antsy. Answer- I'm not, not antsy answer- because then we're going to get off to the races. And the rabbis told me I have three hours to finish. So we just have to <laughs> keep going. I will say rhetorically, when you get those affirmative action forms, Right? And you're supposed to check the box, and it says white, and, and, and then there's the other. You know, like, are you checking white? Are you checking other and filling in Jewish? Are you, are, you know, this tends to raise the blood pressure of people in the room. So tonight we're going to do the definition of whiteness, an historical overview, implications of it, and then take some questions and answers at the end. And if we can save the Q&A till the end so I can just get through everything first, that would be great. We need to begin... Uh, with a little sociology. Any sociology majors? Okay, otherwise I would have spoken freely, but thank you for giving me the warning. (laughs) Biology majors? Oh yeah, I'm in trouble tonight, okay. Whiteness is a sociological phenomenon. It's not so much a biological one. It's not phenotype. It's not actually the color of your skin. Sociologists argue that whiteness is the relationship to power. The extent to which a particular group in society enjoys power or does not enjoy power. It is what's called socially constructed. Now I have to say, by the way, the color of your skin matters a whole lot, the way in which American society works. But whiteness, especially when we're talking about Jews, is not something that's necessarily for Ashkenazi Eastern European uh, light-skinned Jews and now I'll go mathematical on you for a moment. Let's imagine you have 16 great-great-grandparents, however many it takes to get you to 16. Let's imagine 15 of them are Italian, and the 16th is Irish. What would you be? Italian, you'd probably be Italian, you'd probably have an Italian name. There'd be something Irish in there somewhere. Now let's take the 15 Italians, but let's make the 16th African. What are you gonna be? Black. Because in American society, it's called the one drop rule. One drop of African blood makes you black. So statistically speaking, 15 sixteenths of anything actually doesn't work. And then it also inverts another way. Tragically, two white Jewish civil rights workers lost their lives in the South in the 1960s, Schwerner and Goodman. You may be familiar with their story. And many people argue that they lost their lives because they were considered black even though they had white skin. And there also is in the African American community the notion that if an African American is, let's say a Republican, that they've lost their blackness and they've become white. And there's a motto that says, stay black. Well, stay black isn't just a physiological statement, that's actually a sociological one. We know that in the mid-19th century, the Irish in Boston were considered black. They were in fact called the Black Irish. They were lower on the social strata than free blacks, and in terms of at least skin color, Irish would in no way be considered black today. Southern Jews in the late 19th and early 20th century were considered black because they offered credit to African-American customers. And when you do that, From the white Christian racist bigoted South, the blackness of your customers rubbed off on the Jewish store owners. So now the challenge with the Jews. So I'll drop another word that raises blood pressure in Jewish audiences, quotas. Quotas are really bad, right? Jews tend to not like quotas. In the 1920s quotas were instituted in an anti-semitic way to keep Jews out of power. So in the 1960s, when President Lyndon Johnson and the Great Society brought back quotas, almost every national Jewish organization opposed them. And when they opposed them, they supported affirmative action almost universally. So in the 60s, American Jews loved affirmative action until it got to the word quota. And as soon as you got there, American Jews split. Well, in the 1920s, quotas were used to keep whites in power and communities of color out. So if you were a self-interested African American, you did not like quotas in the 20s. Does that make sense? But in the 60s, LBJ put them in to get marginalized communities into power, even at the expense of white America. So if you're a self-interested African American, you would have loved the quotas in the 60s. Well, if you were a white Protestant, you would have loved them in the 20s and hated them in the 60s. I would like to submit that there is only one group in American society that hated them both times, the Jews. How could that be? Something happened between the 1920s and the 1960s. American Jews achieved whiteness. They went from the group that was being kept out to the group that was coming back in. This is an academic field. Uh, This is uh, Eric Goldstein who did his doctoral dissertation at the University of Michigan. He turned it into a great book called The Price of Whiteness. It's the best book on Jews and whiteness if you're interested. Another really good book by Karen Brodkin, uh, retired now from UCLA. How Jews Became White Folks and what that says about race in America. I I use her book because it's an easier read for my undergraduate, so if you want a quicker read, use hers. If you want the former dissertation, take the first book. And the thesis that both of them argue, and this is why Jewish studies is really good in whiteness studies, is Jews tended to go back and forth across the racial divide over time and over place. Sometimes being white or not being white turned out to be a good thing, and sometimes it turned out to be an awful thing, and the two of them sort of traced it. So we're gonna take a really brief overview of this to, to give you this sense. The Gilded Age between 1877 and 1901 was a period of the eugenics movement. The eugenics movement was horrible for Jews and blacks and just about any minority because this is where the idea of genetic inequality came to be. It is in fact what ultimately led the Nazis to the ideology that led to the Shoah, to the Holocaust, and Jews were categorized as non-white. Typically, we would conclude that this was not good for the Jews, but as, as Eric Goldstein points out in his book, it turns out that the qualities listed under the Jewish race was that Jews uh, studied a lot. They were hardworking. They had good Judeo-Christian character. Um, Jewish men made good uh, husbands and they didn't drink. (laughs) That was the word on Jews in the Gilded Age. So if you were Jewish in the Gilded Age, you weren't considered white, but for the most part, they went along with this because they liked the idea that being different meant all of those good things. In the Progressive Era, which is about 1901 to 1914, things got a whole lot worse. Um, an author named William Z. Ripley, believe it or not, wrote a book. Did you, thank you for the three people who laughed on that joke. My students don't get the Ripley believe it or not joke either. Uh, Ripley was a respected anthropologist and in 1899 he wrote a book called uh, Races of Europe. I'm showing you Walter Littman's famous Drift and Mastery. That was the most important book of the progressive era. Racism was so bad in the progressive era that anyone who didn't have white skin was already not white. They knew that. But what Ripley did, and it was taught even in the Ivy League institutions, was he divided white Europeans into different racial classifications. According to Ripley, there was a group called um, Teutonic. And Teutonic were the the northern Europeans, uh, Scandinavia, France, England, uh, not Ireland, they took that out. Um, And the Teutonic were genetically the smartest, hardworking, thoughtful, you wanted to be Teutonic. The next group down were the Alpines and they came from Austria and Switzerland. I'll let you know, Germany was considered Teutonic when the book was published and after the Great War, World War I. Everyone got upset. How could Germany be Teutonic? And the author said, you're right, they're actually Alpine. So they got demoted after World War I. (laughs) And then the third group was Mediterranean. And Mediterranean were were, Southern European. And the Jews of Eastern Europe were categorized in the Mediterranean. That was problematic because the Italians were considered stupid idiots genetically. And then someone talked about the Renaissance. So the scientists, well, I called them pseudoscientists because they weren't actually scientific, but at the time they called themselves scientists, they said, yes, you're tr- that's right. Italians are dumb except for art and we'll figure out how and why, all right? It's going to be a math question for you. If a Teutonic marries a Mediterranean and has a kid, what's the kid? Alpine, thank you, right? I'm not sure that that's true, but we'll just go in the middle. Let's imagine the Alpine kid grows up and marries a Teutonic, and they have a kid, and that kid grows up and marries a Teutonic. Like forever and ever, they're marrying Teutonics. How many generations will it take to return to pure Teutonic stock? Never. This is a very bright group. Yeah. They never, what's that? Thank you, Thank you. yes. the uh, Yeah, it's okay, I will explain for those of us who are mathematically challenged because I went into history to avoid math. What happens, it's a 50% each side and then the next generation's 25 and then 12 and a half and then six and then it keeps going half, half, half. It never actually can hit the line. It's gonna get very close to the line. You can never ever retain pure white Teutonic, dare we say it, Aryan blood. If there's even one marriage of one inferior race. And this is where the issue for Jews and whiteness came in. Because in the 1920s, uh, oh yeah, so there's a passing of the great race, Um, the KKK of the 1920s motto was 100% Americanism. And the KKK of the 20s, unlike that of Reconstruction, was trying to create purebred genetic American white stock. And a Jew coming from Eastern Europe was considered genetically inferior. So um, in the 1920s, the, uh, oh, actually, I'm going to show you the skull experiment first and then we'll talk about what they did. Oh, you know, with all due respect to scientists here, this is what they were doing to your fine profession a century ago. They wanted to know who was smartest, white men, white women, black men, or black women. So they went and got a skull of each. That they self-selected the skulls ahead of time notwithstanding. They cut off the top of the skulls, they filled them up with uh, marbles or beads or whatever you want to scientifically call them to measure cranial capacity. That's a fancy scientific way of saying how many marbles fit inside the skull. Well. When they pre-selected and they smushed a few extra marbles in where they wanted, are you gonna be surprised to know the results? White men followed by white women, followed by black men, followed by black women. And that was taught in the early part of the 20th century in major universities, not as an example of racism and sexism, but as an example of truth. And you had to sort of memorize that for the final exam. So there were concerns in the 1920s that Jews who were not white, who were bringing an inferior genetic stock, who the KKK was afraid were gonna go and marry a a good Aryan-American and have kids and ruin 100% Americanism. So so Congress began to investigate, if you can imagine, the idea that not all immigrants are good for America. And uh, when they did this, they promoted a literacy test first saying, that non-white immigrants are stupid, and we don't want stupid people coming in this country and reproducing. So they got the literacy test passed. And by the way, the important part of the literacy test, they offered it in your native language. This isn't an English only thing. They're not trying to get everyone to be literate in English. The idea is if you're a Jewish immigrant and you're not literate in Yiddish, the chances that you could become literate in English are pretty small, so keep you out. We only want the genetically intelligent non-white people to be permitted to come to the United States. But the problem was too many immigrants passed the literacy test. So in 1921, the US Congress decided that they needed to limit the number of immigrants and they needed to do it by country of origin so that white, how they defined white at that time, would be able to stay and non-white would be excluded. they did something called the National Origins Quota System. And it was 1921, so the 1920 census wasn't yet complete. So they went to the 1910 census. And for every, let's say, 100 Italians in the 1910 census, they got 3% or three quota slots each year. So you get three slots for every 100 people that were there and the first time the Statue of Liberty idea of America as a haven for, for immigrants and for the oppressed, the doors were closing. By 1924, they, uh, 1921 was an emergency lame duck session, so in 24 they took their time. And two things happened. One, they thought 3% was far too generous and too much of a threat so they dropped it to 2%. And the next thing they did, because it was 1924, the 1920 census was complete. So they used the 1890 census. Okay. There's a pause there because the 1920 census was done, yet they went back to 1890. Oh, let's ask the rhetorical question, why on earth did they do that? Why did they do that? I'll answer. Do you want, if you are a genetic racist, 2% of 1920 America or 2% of 1890 America? and Jewish immigration pretty much was between 1890 and 1920, as was most of the Southern and Eastern European immigrations. This was scientific antisemitism and scientific racism purported by the United States Congress in 1921 and 1924. And of course, this law, we know, um, became most devastating in the 30s and 40s when Jewish refugees were trying to get out of Europe and there were limited quota slots uh, for Jews And then we also learned that the State Department even limited, they didn't even fill the quota spots that they had. It's kind of depressing right now. All right. So I'd like to kind of lift things up with World War II, as ironic as that is, uh, and tell you that for a moment it's going to sound good, but don't despair. I'll bring you back down in a minute. The 1950s, was a time of incredible Jewish social mobility. Many of you remember that. Anti-Semitism, which was running so high in this country in the 20s and the 30s, and even through World War II, began to plummet in the 1950s. By 1960, anti-Semitism was effectively no longer a threat. Um, American Jews were able to go to college, able to go to graduate school, able to land professional jobs, the GI Bill, gave Jewish war veterans, and there are a half million of them, lots of opportunities. For the first time in American Jewish history, Jews entered whiteness, which means the suburbs that used to have the anti-Semitic housing restrictions dropped the restrictions. The country clubs dropped their restrictions. The vacation places did. There were, of course, a few that remained. But for the most part, sociologically, by 1960, the data suggests that Jews had achieved that kind of access. And it's going to create some issues because, well, African-Americans, for sure, were not getting into the white suburbs in the 1950s, even when the Jews were. So, So now we have the question, how are American Jews going to respond to their newfound whiteness? they will embrace it. And they'll embrace it big time because they will move to the suburbs. I was raised in PV, we're here in Orange County. These are sort of stories of the rise of suburban America in the post-war period. Synagogues are gonna have capital campaigns and they're gonna raise, I don't know, a gazillion dollars to put up buildings. And they're gonna do that because their congregants can afford it and make a very generous gift to their synagogue to help them in all their needs. That's my pitch right there. You're welcome. I do, I do my best. JCCs, Jewish community centers, are going to be built in the suburbs too. And now here's the, the tough question. When JCCs get built, are they going to, let me sort of fast forward here. Oh no, okay, we're going to get to the Southern Jews in a moment. When the JCCs get built in the 1950s, are they going to admit blacks? Well, there was a study done in 1951. Half of the JCCs in the country Um, would only admit Jews, and assuming we're only talking about about light-skinned Jews now, we don't know what they would have done if they were open to non-Jews, but for the half who opened to non-Jews, it was 50-50. In that, half of those who made the choice followed the racial exclusion of the larger society. And uh, this brings us to the Southern Jews. So that's my Southern Jewish slide. Shalom, y'all. And... uh, and, and because, because not only because we're here in Orange County, but also because um, Rabbi Krauss helped me so much, the late Rabbi Alan Krauss, who was down in Aliso Viejo for many years and was actually up in Northern California before that, um, his son Steve, um, and, and uh, uh, published posthumously his rabbinic dissertation from the Hebrew Union College in Cincinnati. And what Rabbi Krauss did was he went and interviewed reform rabbis in 1965 with the idea that I won't publish your name or your city until like a generation from now because I want you to honestly tell me what it's like to be a, a, a rabbi in the South. And so when I went to the archives working on my, on my dissertation and they wouldn't, they, I didn't know who said what and they said, Rabbi Kraus has to, has to release it because he promised all the rabbis not to release it. Well, the good news was that Um, I was his son's counselor at Camp Swig actually so uh, I sent what was called a facsimile back in those days to Jerusalem where he was on sabbatical and he gave me permission so I want to honor Rabbi Krauss posthumously because he was able I was able to bring this in so here is from Rabbi Krauss a quote from Rabbi Milton Grafman of Birmingham Alabama my colleagues who have shouted the loudest have not been willing to take southern pulpits period and the main reason is economic. Okay, rabbis. They like their fifteen dollars and $20,000 a year pulpits. <laughs> if you are truly sincere about your prophetic Judaism, then you wouldn't hesitate to take a pulpit in Gadsden, Alabama for $9,000 a year. That is what a prophet does. But he has no right to tell someone else to commit economic suicide unless he's willing to make a sacrifice himself. So what Rabbi Krauss taught us is, that southern rabbis, reflecting the position of white southern Jews in the middle of the civil rights movement, understood that the fact that Jews enjoyed more power and privilege in the South than African Americans put them in a tough spot. Rabbi Moses Landau of Cleveland, Mississippi, they asked him, would you get involved in civil rights? Yes, but it would have been limited to 24 hours. 24 hours later, I wouldn't be in the state. The majority of the people of the city have been vehemently opposed to integration, including a great number in the Jewish community. The Jewish community could not exist, could not exist if they in any way were involved in the civil rights movement. Another said, it is your privilege to be a martyr. There's dozens of vacant pulpits. You can pick yourself up within 24 hours and leave. Can you say the same about 1,000 Jewish families in the state? I don't like this last line, but... I am paid by my congregation, and as long as I eat their bread, I shall not do anything that might harm any member of my congregation without their consent. As one with tenure, I advise you to not not abide by that particular line in the name of rabbinic freedom. You see, southern Jews enjoyed white privilege, and even as they were afraid of anti-Semitism because of the lynching of Leo Frank, which occurred within the memory of many people in the South during the 1950s, They had to mediate between the power and the privilege of their racial status and whatever sense of social justice we here in the north might have. And in fact, um, in in my research, I found a whole lot of northern rabbis really empathetic with what it was like to be a southern Jew at that time. So let's move to the north. All right, what is the uh, northern version of the Jim Crow movement. This is the famous picture of Rabbi Heschel with Dr. Martin Luther King. Everybody wants to put that on the cover of all of the books, because that's supposed to be the sign of how it was. Well, I'd like to read a, a quote for you, and uh, oh, we'll make it, I know, we'll make it a quiz. This is a pop quiz. I'll read for you the quote, but I won't tell you who said it, and then you have to guess who said it. A segregated school system is not merely an unfair system, but it's wasteful and inefficient. Nevertheless, we do not believe a federal law to equalize educational opportunity by public subsidy should be used as a means to attack the segregated school system. So long as the law guarantees that states having segregated school systems do not discriminate financially against the children in minority schools, we believe the bill should be supported. All right, what kind of person is saying that? And by the way, the background here, of course, is Jim Crow segregation and funding for schools. You want to raise your hand if you want to offer uh, an answer on who should? Yes. JFK. JFK. Wow, that's surprising because people, most people would see JFK as going sort of uh, against segregation. Well done. Because JFK, in fact, did not go along with the Civil Rights Act early, uh, and it took a lot of work. What's your name? All right, nice to meet you, Art. Art, um, I've been holding up some prizes here for you, yeah. I tell my students I want to pay their tuition when I get my first million dollar paycheck, and since I know that's not coming, instead, when they give a really good answer, they get a prize. And the prize is a genuine Jewish studies-themed pencil. And I'm giving the pencils out here because this is a crowd that knows what a pencil is, because my undergraduates don't use pencils anymore. <laughs> Somebody else want to offer who they think said that? Yeah. LBJ. LBJ. Wow, we are so cynical here. Yeah, could LBJ ultimately passed the Civil Rights Act, which overturned this idea, but maybe in his early days in Texas. What kind of person is going to be in favor of Jim Crow segregation? Yeah, a good Southern bigot. How about Rabbi Stephen S. Wise, New York Free Synagogue? Now that is something on my wow meter Thank you. I will bring that home. Yeah, so here's how it goes. Um, after World War II, there was concern that the federal, that our schools, funded by the states, are not going to keep up with the communists. So the federal government needs to put a gazillion dollars into public schools to augment state-supported schools. And, and, and Stephen S. Wise, the most powerful rabbi of his era, in case you haven't heard of him, friends of President Franklin D. Roosevelt, goes down to DC, sits in front of the Senate Subcommittee on Education and is arguing, we need more money for schools. That's a good Jewish rabbinic position to take. And he finishes his testimony, and the white male Southerner Southern senators pull him aside. And they said, Rabbi, we're not taking a dime of federal money because we are afraid that you are going to try to undo Jim Crow segregation with your federal dollars. So this bill will not get out of committee and you won't get a dime anywhere in the country unless you agree to an amendment that says not a dime will go to overturn racial segregation. And now Rabbi Wise has an impossible choice. He can stand for civil rights and there'll be no money. Or he can kowtow to the segregationist racists and hopefully get some money to the rest of the country. Dr. Martin Luther King was not old enough to have been in that room, but let's pretend he was there. Would Dr. King take the deal? No way, his whole point was racial equality. And Stephen S. Wise took the deal because he thought that that's at least a beginning. That shows Rabbi Wise's whiteness and the power and the privilege he enjoyed relative to African Americans and how decision-making of Jews and social justice and tikkun olam, my two favorite words in the English language now, um, uh, reflect that idea. All right, so... Let's go on to uh, the contemporary scene, yeah, and then we'll get to questions. What's happening today in the 21st century with Jews and whiteness? Well, Jews are doing really well, at least white Jews, we'll get to Jews of color in a moment. Communities of color are getting very frustrated with American Jews. For the this, is, this is the generality, but I'm speaking now from a community relations point of view and what I'm hearing from Jewish leaders in community relations who, who are looking for perspective. So, so here's the deal. If you're a leader in a community of color and you know about white America, and you know how to deal with white America, and you do, and then there's the Jews, because the Jews are in white America, but they don't think they're in white America, and it's really frustrating to deal with white people who don't think that they're white, you see, because <laughs> American Jews believe in peace, love, and Bobby Sherman. I was very happy to get my peace, love, and Bobby Sherman slide up there. See, this is a 1960s idea that education is the answer. Let's just hold hands, have Quincy Jones write a song, make matching t-shirts across America, and the world will be a better place. Well, what we've learned in the 60s and what we've learned throughout history, in fact, is that peace, love, and Bobby Sherman doesn't all, well, usually doesn't work. What works is power. And if you have power, it's a whole lot better not to know if, than, than not to have power. And, and here is for me a, a, little, a little test. Uh, this is Milton Gordon's path-breaking 1964 book, Assimilation in American Life. He wasn't talking about Jews. He was talking about white immigrants, even though he didn't say that. But when immigrant groups acculturate or assimilate to America, Gordon talked about seven levels of becoming American, right? So you land and you become, you know, you've got to like, you know, learn English. You've got to change your religion maybe. There's lots. So my question to you is, and it's worth a pencil for a guess. The rabbi's got the pencils, um, what's level seven? What's the last thing an immigrant group does? OK, we, um, and, oh, now, wait a minute. Now, you're, you've been in my earlier lectures, so if you've heard the answer, you cannot say it. You've heard it before, right? Oh, OK, what do you say? Oh, they begin to discriminate against others. Yeah, that's, that's probably true and cynical. By the way, CSP's sending lots of great people here and I've already let them know. I have four jokes, you have to just keep laughing at them and you can't give away the answers if I repeat the same question. I'll get new voices, yeah. Intermarriage. Intermarriage, well done. That's pencil worthy right there. That's level seven. Yeah, we had a smattering of applause for you, yeah. Uh, I'll be gendered about this. They may say that they love you and accept you, but would they let you marry their daughter? When Christian America allows Jews to marry into their families, that's the moment Gordon argues that an immigrant has truly become American. And so this means, by the way, that rising levels of intermarriage reflect rising level of acceptance, power, privilege and whiteness So as I tell the community leaders when I speak to them who are all lamenting intermarriage, I said, be careful what you wish for because the moment you want civil equality in a Christian dominated society, you have achieved it. And here on the West Coast and in California particularly, we have achieved it better than most of the rest of the country. Congratulations to us. Well, so I just finished a book on black power and the Jews from the 1960s. And the thesis of the book was the way in which American Jews um, actually borrowed from Black Power into in Jewish ways, like the Soviet Jewry movement kind of comes from the Black Power movement, but Jews don't recognize that it's coming from Black Power. So the argument is that Jew, that Americanness is really Jewishness, and Jewishness is really Americanness, even though we don't think so. And uh, I was having. Uh, uh, lunch with uh, a friend of mine um, who is uh, an African-American Jewish woman, and we were talking about uh, um, the—oh, my gosh, I don't know, rabbis, if you participated—in the 50-year anniversary Selma to D.C. march to recommemorate commemorate the um, Heschel King march? Well, we start talking about this march, and I'm kind of excited about the march, and she's kind of very unexcited about the march, and she starts telling me, and this is, by the way, a, a group of Jews of color who are now having national conferences and talking about this, and, uh, and she says to me, imagine the Facebook picture. So I'm trying to imagine the Facebook picture. Yes, there it is, and they're, they're all like this. So it's not just this particular picture. It's white rabbi, Torah, African-American. And uh, they're marching together and everyone's happy. Now there's a problem here with this particular image and this particular event, because it's not gonna be true for your rabbis, but some of these rabbis are gonna come back to their congregations thinking they're Rabbi Heschel and thinking that they're fantastic, and they're gonna give their sermons and it's gonna be great apparently, and they're gonna miss the point, as Ilana Kaufman taught me, which is that, in fact, we have systemic racism and oppression, and white Jews aren't getting it, and certainly for Jews of color who even experience it in the organized Jewish community, um, that that actually the white rabbis should come back from that march scared to death because they've just opened their eyes to a world they would never imagined or seen or comprehended because for the last 50 or 60 years we've enjoyed the privileges of whiteness. So um, Rabbi Chuck Briskin, who used to be at Temple Bethel San Pedro, now he's on the East Coast, but he went and, and he got it. So I asked him for a quote for the book and it was great. He said, 50 years ago, the police beat them up. Now we got a police escort. Fifty years ago, they were worried about physical assault on their body. I'm worried that my baseball cap isn't big enough to block the sun. Fifty years ago, they were going to lose their jobs, and I worried if my flight was delayed, I'd be late for my Wednesday night board meeting, right? So, so Ilana, here's a picture of Ilana. So, Ilana, who just started a new project called the Jews of Color um, Field Building Initiative, she's like, where are the black Jews? or to be more pointed, if we're talking about Jews and whiteness, how would she appear in that Facebook picture? How would we talk about black Jewish relations if there are black Jews? And how would we talk about what it is to be white as a Jew if there are Jews and it's now 20% of American Jews self-identify as ethnically diverse, probably 10% is African American. And all of a sudden, what Ilana did to me at that lunch was ruin my book because she asked the question, How much Jew- is Jewishness really whiteness? But we're not recognizing whiteness and we're calling it Jewishness. So I made her the epilogue of the book so at least I can get ahead of the critique as it's coming. And then I said to her, Okay, you have to write the next version. You see, here is the biggest, most profound challenge we face as Jews whiteness is about power and privilege. Jews have been powerful and powerless at different times in different places. Our racial status keeps changing. That's why I think it's such a confusing topic. So um, here is one of the most compelling images in all of Jewish studies. This is Auschwitz. And over Auschwitz are three Israel Air Force F-16 jets. Now, The Shoah, which ended in the Holocaust, which ended in 1945, was the moment of most greatest, worst powerlessness in Jewish history. There is no one on this planet who will say Jews are white without having to make an exception for Auschwitz. It turns out there's an Israeli Air Force. It was started officially in 1948 when the State of Israel was created. I know this is being recorded, but it's okay, I have tenure. There's rumor that Israel has an atomic bomb, or 200 of them, and it didn't come in 1948, but let's just for the sake of argument say a nuclear country gets started in 1948. There is no more powerful thing a nation state or people can have than the ability to destroy the world. Therefore, in 1945, we were the most powerless people on the planet, who barely survived a genocide, and just three years later, we were on the road to becoming the most powerful white people you can possibly imagine, and those are implications for Israel-Palestine, the occupation, and all the arguments that are going on with that now. Well, I argue that much of our debate about Jews and whiteness, about power and privilege, about how we navigate this, is post-Shoah trauma. That we are still trying to assimilate what it is to be powerless and powerful simultaneously. And just so you know, it's, it's a generational thing. The older generations tend to be on the powerless side. The younger generations tend to embrace the powerful side based upon our life experience. Well, um, Rabbi Yitz Greenberg, one of my favorite theologians and one who has spent his whole career fascinated with this question, um, has a Uh, My best favorite article in all of Jewish studies is called The Ethics of Jewish Power, and he wrote it. Here are three three or four sentences from it. These are, to me, the most important sentences in Jewish studies. Power corrupts. Let's just start there. Whiteness, power corrupts. When Jews became white and privileged and moved into the suburbs and Rabbi Weiss and and, 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 and the southern Jews, just make the list. This Orthodox rabbi is reminding us that whenever the Jews acquire power or I'll say whiteness, we will be corrupted. But there is no other morally tolerable choice. The alternative is death. This is the lesson that the Jewish people learned in the Holocaust. Jews have suffered powerlessness. Jews have achieved powerfulness. Powerfulness and whiteness is corrupting. And we need to live with the power and live with the corruption because the alternative is genocide. That's a heck of a choice. Power, corruption, nor death. Shabbat shalom. I'm going to take some questions. But first, I have a prize for our rabbis, if they come on up. You see, this was, first of all, I have full respect and appreciation for the topic, for your attention. This, I, I like to give lectures with like, lots of jokes that are hopefully more entertaining. This is not entertaining. This is just all serious, so I appreciate that. But I will tell you that my students get tired of me and the pencils by week three or four in the semester. So I have to upgrade to pens. And then I have to move through. I actually have seven levels of prizes. So by 15 week, they're still getting excited. So your rabbis are gonna get the level seven prize tonight. And uh, it's, it's, it's in purple, it's the, it's the uh, SF State color. Just so you know, but one moment, you twist this thing. you know. But here's the thing, um, there's a cap on the end. If you could pull the cap off, it's hard to pull off, but. Oh, it's a 16 gigabyte memory drive. Wow. Who knew? But wait, but wait, this is actually, there's, there's, but wait, there's more. Your rabbis face, um, well, many challenges, I'm sure. I'm just giving you some love and support. But uh, their challenge, especially in the reform movement, is to mediate between tradition and modernity. That is so much of Judaism is the old and the traditional, yet living in the 21st century, we've got to figure out how to make it work for the modern times, so here's the pen, you see? If ever you feel ancient, you take this side of the pen with something called ink, and you can actually write someone a letter on paper and put a stamp on it and mail it, which nobody ever does anymore. But if you're feeling and you're it that you want to be modern, you just flip to the computer side, you put it in and you're all digital all the time. This is not just a pen. It's a metaphor of your lives. Thank you very much. <laughs> all right, so questions. Uh, I, was wondering if you was oh, I think we have a microphone uh, coming.
0: I was wondering if you thought there was any relationship between the isolat, isolat, policy of the United States in the 1920s, and the effect on uh, the feeling towards Jews at that
1: period. Okay, so the question was, is a relationship between 1920s isolationism and attitudes towards Jews? Absolutely. The isolationism, well, in the 20s, we had the immigration restriction. The isolationism actually came more in the 1930s, when the US Congress was doing all it could to prevent FDR from preparing for what FDR knew to be the inevitable um, war to come. The most popular anti-Semite of the 1920s was Charles Lindbergh. And Father Coughlin, who was an anti-Semitic uh, uh, priest, had a radio show with two million listeners. So in the 19- so I'll just go back and agree with you. In the 1920s, the isolationism was all about not getting, when the war came in 33, not getting the US involved in a war which was started by, and this is what, what Lindbergh said. Um, FDR, the British, and the Jews. Um, and in this sense, World War II was great for the Jews in that when, when Hitler, when the U.S. declared war on Germany, everything about Hitler now became an enemy of America so the Jews could say that Hitler is an enemy of their country as well as of their faith. Okay, yeah. Uh, hold on one moment for the microphone because are, are we being podcasted here? Yes, yeah, so we are being made into a podcast and this will allow the podcast to hear you. So going
0: back to the quotas,
1: if Congress set the quotas for immigrants coming in from Europe, so how would they know if they were bringing in Jews, because they would know if they were Irish or German or French, but how would they know if they were bringing in Jews to set that quota? Yeah, because, because of the separation of church and state, the US government was not asking the religious classification of its people. And the quota system was not based on religion. It was based on country. So Poland and Russia would be the ones getting limited. It had the effect of limiting Jews because they came from Poland and Russia. But on that theme, scholars of American Jewish history um, can't tell from government, from, from the census, who's Jewish. But luckily for us, they did ask for native language. So if it says Yiddish, we're feeling pretty good about it.
0: Thank you. A couple more questions all, all here. All the way. All the way. Yeah. Julie.
1: Okay. Thank you. Um, and first, just a quick thank you for your work against BDS. Uh, but my my question is whether um, Jewish whiteness or or the the issue of Jews becoming white is is really Jews becoming white or if it's a question of more passing because the looking back over a longer arc of history than starting in the late 1800s but it it called to mind earlier in the lecture the many many more instances than I can name over the course of European and world history where we were passing in a country until we weren't and then there was an expulsion or pogroms and what have you and before those things happened there was a period of passing and assimilation, thank you. Yeah, thank you, and when I give these talks, I engage in what's called hopeless reductionism, because I have 45 minutes to do like a nine hour thing, so thank you for that question. Um, It's, this is an internal external factor question, which is to say to what extent do Jews internally wish to become white, and to what extent does the external world around them let them be white? Both of them have to be happening simultaneously, And, and I'm arguing mostly external until 1950s, because no matter what Jews would have wanted prior to World War II, they were not white and they faced anti-Semitic discrimination. At the moment at which the anti-Semitic restrictions dropped and Jews now have the choice of whether they wish to choose whiteness or not, that would be the next moment of historical inquiry, and in almost every case they chose whiteness, meaning they were willing to go into racially-segregated suburbs um, and sign on the dotted line, even if, let's say, African Americans were, were not permitted. Um, and then it sort of moved on from there. And uh, I'll let the rabbi take you a couple
0: more questions. Yeah. Rabbi, do you want to? Uh, thank you very much. Uh, in the Trump, the next two years in the Trump administration era, are Jews trending to
1: be more white or less white? In the next two years. All right, so thank you. So that's, that, that's my Trump mention. So I want to, first, I forgot one thing on thank you on the BDS comment. If any of you are um, members of the CSB Community Scholar Program or want to be in the next 24 hours, um, tomorrow night I'm going to be speaking, um, uh, telling the whole story of what's gone on the last three years at San Francisco State. It's not a scholarly talk, it's my personal journey. So if you're interested, just like go to the website or Ari doesn't answer the phone on Shabbos, so you can talk to, you know, or just show up and, and I'll vouch for you or something. But um, okay, so now Trump. So every once a year, I give the sermon at my synagogue up north, and I usually do it in January, and I usually do it on Blacks and Jews and Martin Luther King weekend, because that's my field. And my rabbi, Stacy Friedman, called me up and said, okay, you know, you're not talking about Blacks and Jews, you're gonna talk about Trump. And I was like, no, we, we agreed. And she said, turns out Inauguration Day is on a Friday. Two years ago, it was on a Friday. So this congregation is going to be walking into the synagogue like hours after the inauguration. And you're going to need to talk about it. And don't piss anyone off, she said. <laughs> so, so I'm going to try to follow Rabbi Stacy Friedman's advice you know, in the answer to this question. And I want to connect it to whiteness. And I want to be provocative and uh, truthful. And this is what I told my, my congregation. Um, the, the crowd in this room is probably anti-Trump. And I'm just going to go with, not to say all of you are, but I'm just going to start there to say there has been, and, and so I told the congregation, I said this April, meaning the, April, the first April of his administration, will be the first time in US history that a Passover Seder in the White House has been a family Seder, and not a Seder for the Jewish members of the White House staff. and. Uh, we have Jews closer to the U.S. president than we have ever had in U.S. history. We have the daughter and the son-in-law and the grandchildren, and I'm sure this isn't true, but just to provoke you, they could call him Zadie. What we have, what we have is a segmented We have a segmented American Jewish community, which means um, in the Orthodox community, it's predominantly Republican and pro-Trump. In the communities from the former Soviet Union, it's much more pro-Trump. And in the Israeli-American community, you get a lot more pro-Trump. For the Eastern European-descended Jewish liberal Democrats, which is most everyone else, it's vehemently anti-Trump. So rather than look at the overall statistics, I'm interested in the segmentation of it which is to say that there are um, American Jewish subgroups that identify as Jews, as Americans, and as whites in fundamentally different ways than probably most of the people in the room. And for that reason, one could argue that nothing is better for the Jews than the Trump administration. And when he moved the capital to Jerusalem, that is where that divide just came out to the point that many of your Thanksgiving dinners probably got very uncomfortable very quickly in order to see. So I like to, to as a scholar, because I, I, my field is Jews and politics, I never advocate a position. My job is to complicate your narrative and deepen learning whatever your audience is, I want to complicate it and deepen it, so now I'm gonna complicate it on, on the Trump thing, um, which is to say that, that this is honest and real to the moment that we have, and, uh, and for American Jews who've, who've turned white, um, Stephen Miller, the most important advisor, the one behind the whole anti-Jewish immigration policy, is a Jewish kid and went synagogue in, in Santa Monica, right? So, so uh, we would have a hard time trying to conflate Jewish politics universally. And that tells me, as a scholar, that we now have to look at each segment and figure out how each one is coming at him in a different way. And that's what I try to teach my congregation.
0: Professor, I want to thank you so much for a powerful lecture and great answers. And um, please come back and visit us again uh, in the future. Friends, uh, we're going to have an Oneg Shabbat. Please join us. Again, welcome to all those CSP members and,
1: of course, our Temple members. Thank you so much.